0: Welcome to another episode of Christian Podcast. I'm your host, Beto Gudiño, broadcasting a signal of hope from Costa Mesa, California. And today, this is an ungodly hour for me right here in California. It's about 5 a.m. and we have two amazing guests joining us. And one of them is joining us all the way from Israel. And today we have special guests who they have together written a book called The Bible With and Without Jesus. How Jews and Christians read the same stories differently. So their authors are Amy Jill Levin and Marks B. Brettler. So how are you guys doing this morning? Or this evening, whatever it is for you.
1: (laughs) It's seven o'clock in the morning in Nashville. I'm still pretty tired, but I appreciate your getting up as early as you did.
2: And it's a little after three in the afternoon in Jerusalem. So I'm getting ready for
0: Shabbat and I really appreciate your getting up early. And I appreciate you guys coming on the show. Um, Can we start with introducing uh, yourselves, who you are, a little bit of what you do? Uh, Let's start with Amy.
1: My name is AJ Levine, I teach primarily New Testament at Vanderbilt University in both the Divinity School, where my primary job is to train people who want to be Christian ministers how to read the New Testament, and I also teach in the Department of Jewish Studies.
2: And I'm Mark Brettler, I teach at Duke University in the Department of Religious Studies, and I'm also part of the Center for Jewish Studies, and I teach a wide variety of courses to undergraduates and graduates on the Hebrew Bible, Old Testament, Tanakh. Maybe we'll get to what we should call that funny collection of books. And I also teach some courses in Jewish studies as well.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you guys for being on the show. I've been reading your book. It's phenomenal. It's huge. <laughs> it has a lot of pages, but it's so good. I love I love the idea of why you guys um, you know, came up with the book. So would you tell me, um, The first question I want to ask you guys is, what is the Bible for a Jew?
2: There's no simple answer to that text, (laughs) to that question, excuse me. Uh, To different Jews, the Bible is different things. But pretty much to most Jews, it is the central book of our tradition. The Bible interpreted, not the Bible itself stands at the center of what we, what many Jews believe, how many Jews think Judaism should be practiced. And it's the book which, if we go to synagogue, we hear the first part of the book, the Torah and the cycle, either every year or once every three years. So it really is the central book interpreted, which defines us as Jews, both in what it says, and also in what is absent from it.
0: Mm-hmm. Amy, would you add anything to to that? Or do you want to say what the Bible is for a Christian?
1: Um, I, it, I think the same sense of diversity occurs whether one is Jewish or Christian, because the Bible will always mean different things to different people. Moreover, if you read a biblical text when you're six years old and you read the same text when you're 60 and, and you get exactly the same message, there's, there's no depth, there's no change, there's no inquiry, then something has gone really wrong and it hasn't gone wrong with the Bible. So the Bible, as soon as as soon as soon people put pen to papyrus or as soon as Jesus spoke a word, immediately people are going to hear different things uh, and those different things will depend upon whether you're rich or you're poor uh, whether you're male or female, whether you're a child or whether you're an adult, and so on. So the text, as Mark pointed out, has to be interpreted. And the way Jews read the Bible is through the lens of ongoing Jewish interpretation, um, which is already occurring within the pages of the Bible itself. In the same way that Christians will read what Christians called the Old Testament, through the lens of the New Testament, and then, and then on through the lens of particular Christian traditions, be they uh, Roman Catholic or Southern Baptist or anything in between. So the Bible is a text which is inevitably open to a, a myriad of interpretations. And if it weren't, that would be like silencing the Holy Spirit, and there's no reason to do that.
0: Oh, that's so good. I love it. and. Um... Somewhere in the book, you write about ancient scriptures becoming weaponized and how that is translated to the online world. Could you guys elaborate a little bit about what you mean when the scriptures become weaponized? I'll
1: start with that one. Um, Even when I was a child, I mean, one of the reasons I got into biblical studies in the first place is because when I was a child, This little girl in my neighborhood accused me of killing God because she had heard that the Jews were responsible and I I was the target kid. Um, It it occurred to me that that the Bible could be used to do great harm. Um, It's been used to sponsor various forms of colonialism and economic exploitation and taking people away from their indigenous traditions and forcing them to be baptized. The Bible has been used to do a whole lot of harm. And it seemed to us that that's not what its purpose is. So one of the things we try to do in our volume is to show how multiple interpretations arise because it's been the case over the centuries that if you disagreed with the predominant interpretation, uh, that could get you burned at the stake or that could get you expelled from your country. And to show how the text, both testaments, should be read as promoting love of God and love of neighbor and more than that, love of stranger and as Jesus would extend it to love of enemy. So how do we read the text and choose a reading that's kind and compassion and benevolent rather than something that's cruel and harmful and malevolent? And there are techniques to help us. Those are the techniques that we brought into our book.
2: Yeah, and many of these malevolent readings involve a certain type of proof texting, which is one of the issues we talk about in this book that you call the big book. Yeah, it's big, but the print is big. So uh, listeners, please don't get too scared by the size of the book. (laughs) But uh, proof proof texting often involves taking a particular verse or part of a verse, almost always out of context, interpreting it in one way, insisting that that is the only possible interpretation and uh, really removing the verse from its moorings and ignoring other biblical verses and other biblical traditions, which might say something very different. So a great example of texting that's very uh, prevalent in America is using the King James translation of the Decalogue or the Ten Commandments, as it's frequently called, and saying, thou shalt not kill. And it's very, very, and using it in particular political contexts. Well, it's very, very clear that the Hebrew word that's used there does not mean kill, but does, but rather refers to murder. And to simplistically apply those two Hebrew words, lo tierzach, to very complicated situations uh, in contemporary American life, is a way in which the Bible is being weaponized
0: and is being weaponized very inappropriately, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. And I love how somewhere in the book you wrote in the 21st century, we are finally at the point where Jews and Christians can read their shared texts differently and learn from each other. And I think we know a little bit of the yeast of the, the whole book is came almost like this idea of, can we agree to disagree? And I think, I mean, that comes with interpretation. How do we interpret a text? Um, somewhere in the book, you talk about like the macroscopic and the microscopic lenses in a sense. And I love how you have some example of how even a, a one letter can mean so many different things. Can you expand a little bit on, on you know, what are the microscopic and microscopic lenses to interpret scripture? Oh, I'll let you go first, AJ. No,
1: no, no this one's you, because those, those are your terms, and I, I, I think the terms are correct
2: what we're really referring to is that, and in some ways this relates to your previous. my answer to your previous question, that in order to understand the Bible, at least in its original context, and by the Bible here, I'm referring both to the Hebrew Bible, the Tanakh, and the New Testament. Uh, in its original context, you really need to be able to understand, to have a very strong knowledge of the original languages, and to understand what Hebrew meant originally, what Aramaic meant originally for the small parts of the Hebrew Bible that in Aramaic, what Greek meant originally, and and also to understand the background of those books. You need to understand what ancient Israel is about. You need to understand what the Greco-Roman period is about. And looking at those texts, in a very, very fine microscopic way, helps us understand each of the words, each of the phrases, each of the sentences. And then when you build it up, you actually would have a set of macroscopic readings. You'll read a word within its verse, within its its paragraph, within its chapter, within its book within its canon. And that last point I think is a really important one, how Jews and Christians read the same verses or the same books differently within different canons. And that's a lot of what you asked about your question about agreeing to disagree, because to take an example from our book about big macroscopic, macroscopic readings, If you read the book of Jonah Jonah, macroscopically within the Hebrew Bible, you're going to interpret it in one way. And that's the way that most Jews interpret it, as having the theme of the efficacy of repentance as being central, and that there always is an opportunity for people to repent. But if you're a Christian, and you have a different definition of the Bible, and the Bible is a two-volume work, where Jonah is in volume number one, and both volumes speak to each other in a constructive fashion, then you're going to read, then a different section of Jonah is going to be important, namely the chapter about Jonah being in the belly of the big fish for three days and three nights, and then being disgorged alive. The alive is an incredibly important part for this Christian reading. And as such, Uh, Jonah is going to be a prefiguration for Jesus. So if you have different landscapes, then those macroscopic readings are going to be very
0: different. Mm
1: -hmm. To give another example, Mark and I really like working on Jonah because we get so tired of people saying, oh yeah, it's just about a big fish. Oh no, it's so (laughs) much
2: more. Um, What's even worse, they say it's about a big whale. There isn't even a whale in the Hebrew text. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Um,
1: when Christians typically read the book of Genesis, right at the beginning, they will find the Trinity there. So that in Hebrew, the the, the mighty wind uh, that, that hovers over the face of the deep becomes the Holy Spirit. And there are reasons for that, because both the Hebrew and the Greek word for wind can also be translated breath or spirit, ruach in Hebrew and pneuma in Greek. And then if you read that material through the lens of the first part of the Gospel of John, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, um, then you find Jesus and the Spirit right there in Genesis 1.1. And one of the things that's way cool about what happens when you start looking at how Christians are reading and how um, Jews who are not Christians, because you know, in the first century, all those followers of Jesus were themselves Jews, um, like Paul and Peter and so on. That In Aramaic, there's a term memra, and in some Aramaic translations of Genesis, God creates by means of God's memra, God's word. So you could have a Jew and a person who's a believer in Jesus, whether from the Jewish world or the Gentile world, and then some Stoic philosopher out there, and somebody would say, in the beginning was the word, and all three of them would nod their heads. And they'd start to go, well, you know, when it gets around to verse 14 and the word became flesh that, you know, two of them might look at the Jesus (laughs) ball and go, I'm not sure I want to go there. But at least we find we've got a whole lot more in common than we thought we did. So one of the things the book can do is to show how Jesus followers and other Jews were reading along the same lines. And then gradually through the centuries, those lines began to diverge. Mm. So we can find common common roots and then be be able to celebrate the different branches. Because we don't think that any tradition has a lock on, this is what it means and that's the end of it. So if at the end of the day, somebody, a Jew can look at a Christian and say, well, I don't agree with you, but I can see where you get it. I can see why the Christian would find Jesus on every single page of the Old Testament. And the Christian can say, oh, I didn't know Jews read those texts, the suffering servant, or the prediction of Emmanuel, or the reading of creation or understanding of sacrifice. The Christian can say, I didn't know Jews read that way. That's really interesting. I don't agree with you, but I can see where you get it. And then you can have some beginnings of mutual understanding and mutual respect. And that's all to the good.
0: Mm-hmm. Mutual understanding mutual respect. I love it. And I see played out throughout the book and throughout all of its chapters. Can you tell me a little bit of the, the structure of the book because I know, I mean, it has like a, an introduction to the terms and the phrases that you're going to use throughout the book. And then you have three questions that you're trying to answer in each chapter. And then for like the next, uh, I believe it's nine or ten chapters, you focus on specific sets of scripture and then kind of like dissect them into uh, you know how, how do each people interpret them. And then you have a conclusion. So can you tell me a little bit about that, you No, know, those three questions and the structure of the book? Sure. So I think you described
2: it really, really well. So after an introductory chapter on interpreting the Bible and a second introductory chapter, which we call the problem and promise of prophecy, you know, one of the places where we like alliteration, and we talk about prophecy, proof text, polemics, and possibilities, we have 10 chapters, each of which deals with either a section of the Bible or a theme from the Bible. I'll go over those 10 in a section in a second to give all the listeners a sense of what we cover. And honestly, we could have done 20 chapters, but as you said, the book is already long and <laughs> long enough and heavy enough, but... Uh, each of the chapters is divided into three main sections, which do not compete with each other. While many other people, these, sec- these chapters would compete, we believe each of these three is a legitimate sort of reading. We attempt to figure out what each of these themes or sections meant in its original context, in the period of the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament, recognizing that very often we can't determine this for sure but that there already is a whole lot of uncertainty about what the text originally meant. Then the next two sections deal in a very non-polemical fashion with how these texts or traditions were interpreted in early Judaism and to some extent Judaism through today and how they were interpreted in early Christianity and to some extent Christianity through today. So we offer the original meaning, and to take A.J.'s image, I'll now add a root to her branches. If the original meaning is the root or the trunk of the tree, then we explore two possible branches, places where those branches disagree, and quite often places where those branches agree and where they're intertwined in various ways. That's also something that we try to show. So very quickly, the 10 main themes or texts that we deal with are the creation of the world, Adam and Eve, uh, the chapter Genesis 14 and Psalm 110 about Melchizedek, the theme of an eye for an eye, especially as it appears in the Sermon on the Mount, the significance of blood in Judaism and Christianity, the verse in Isaiah chapter 7,
0: verse 14, which for most people is translated,
2: Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a child. Then Isaiah's suffering servant, that's particularly the end of Isaiah chapter 52 and all of Isaiah chapter 53. Jonah, Psalm 22, and especially its use in the New Testament, in particular of the verse, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then the image or the phrase, son of man, and its different meanings. And then given that we know and have discussed how often these verses have been the locus of a polemic, our final chapter, which is really what we hope the whole book is about, we call from polemic to possibility, because we honestly do believe that now in 2020, not only is it possible for these different religious communities, the Jewish community and the Christian community to talk about these verses in a non-polemical fashion, but is actually essential and crucial for these two communities to do so and to understand sympathetically what the other community is doing with the very same biblical texts. You wanna
1: add on to that, Amy? Uh, that was a great summary. I'm listening to Mark going, yeah, we wrote a good book. Um, and, and it's true, the book the book is a big book, but it's written, we hope, we think, um, in an accessible manner because we actually find this stuff enormously interesting. And as Mark and I were going through, he with his specialty in the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, the not, and me with my specialty in early Christianity, every once in a while, I'd say to Mark, really? I mean, that's, that's, that's the historical, I didn't know that. And Mark would say to me, Christians read it that way? I didn't know that. So the volume becomes for us a a means not only of providing our readers a sense of these multiple views, but also Mark and I sometimes wrestling with these texts and going, I don't think it means that. Yeah, I think it does mean that. So we get to show our readers what it means to be a Jew reading a text, Um, how to read a text through Christian lenses, how to read a text as an historian, and these even in our conversation, we came to multiple possibilities. You know, it could mean this, yeah, but it could also mean that. So what we try to do do is show the joy of biblical interpretation and again give readers tools so that they can take what we've done and then do more on their own. Um, for some of my Christian students, they just want to know what the one right answer is. <laughs> and and you know, there are four gospels, which means there are at least four ways of understanding Jesus. And there may be one right answer for this person, but a different right answer for somebody else. Um, So how do you read the text and allow for multiple interpretations? And you start with the historical, and then you look at through Jewish lenses, and it turns out that Jewish lenses already are gonna give you 10 or 12 readings. And then you look through different Christian lenses because what St. Augustine saw is not necessarily what Mm -hmm. Martin Luther saw, is not necessarily what the people at First Baptist down the street are seeing. Why does that happen, and what good do these multiple interpretations give us? And we think Mark, Mark and I think we've managed to show that.
2: And I want to just pick up on, I, want, I want to pick up on one phrase that AJ just said, uh-huh. which is how to read a text through Christian lenses. And you know, I've listened to a few of your podcasts, and have enjoyed listening to them in preparation <laughs> you. for this. And you know, I have a sense that the people listening to this are going to be predominantly Christian and are going to be surprised. You know, Here we are, in case, listeners, in case you didn't notice, two Jews who wrote a book called The Bible with and without Jesus. And yes, one of the things that we do talk about is various ways in which the Bible has been read through Christian lenses. And we believe that anybody who has a good grasp of languages has a good grasp of history, is able to answer a question like that. We're not going to tell you what Christian lens you should use, but we're both historians of religion. And one thing that we can do, I believe uh, correctly, is to understand understands properly and sympathetically different Christian ways that this book has been read. And I would just point out that this happens in the academic world, all of the time, there's no choice about this. Uh, People teach courses in the French Revolution and it would really be quite something if one day a student came in the first day and raised her hand and said to the professor, excuse me, did you live through the French Revolution? How are you possibly able to teach this course? And of course the professor would respond by saying, you don't need to live through something or to have been through something to have a sane opinion about it.
1: I want to add to that just a little bit. This is a problem that Mark and I have is he says <laughs> something and then I'm reminded of something. And, and, and Love we've it. gotten to the point where we finish each other's sentences. But since he's in Jerusalem and I'm in Nashville, he gets to finish before I do because he's ahead of time <laughs> than I am. Um. I, when students come into my class, some classes particularly the intro New Testament class, some of them are like, "Wait a minute! There's there's a Jew who goes to an Orthodox synagogue who's going to teach me about Jesus," and and they're a little bit hesitant. Well, then they find out that I've written you know a whole lot of books about Jesus, and then it's okay. But what I can say to them, which makes sense to them, is if you claim, if you claim to love Jesus, which as a Christian you should, um, then you you should want to know everything possible about when he lived and the people he spoke with and how he fit into his environment, and what text he considered to be scripture, which would be the Old Testament of the church. Um, I can tell you all that. So you claim to love him, I can tell you even more about him to make you love him more. And even though I do not worship him as Lord and Savior, and, and that's a matter of what the church would call grace. I mean, my heart is completely filled with my own Judaism, so I haven't felt that call. I haven't had a road to Damascus or even road to Emmaus experience. Although, I've been on the road to amaze. Um, I think Jesus is absolutely splendid. I think he's smart. Um, I've written a couple of books about his parables. I just finished a book on the Sermon on the Mount. I think this stuff is brilliant. So here's another thing that we're able to do because we're historians. Too often, understanding Jesus um, has devolved into types of anti-Judaism. So as we show in our, our chapter on an eye for an eye, so my Christian students think that Jews are doing an eye for an eye and they're interested in retribution and Jesus somehow invents restorative justice. So we can go through and show how that original law was formulated, what people were doing in those ancient times in the ancient Near East. And then move forward to talk about how Jews have interpreted an eye for an eye and we don't interpret it literally. Um, and then my Christian friends go, oh, So Jesus isn't going against Judaism? No, not at all. What he's doing is he's taking Torah and like a good Jew saying, here's how I interpret the text.
2: Mm -hmm. So
1: we can locate Jesus in his context, show Christians even more about why they should appreciate him and avoid some of the anti-Jewish interpretation which has too often infected Christian preaching and teaching.
0: Mm -hmm. And you actually, uh, in, in that same chapter about the eye for an eye, uh, I mean, me as a Christian reading this, I was like, are you kidding me? You mentioned Leviticus abolishes the slavery. Am I right? I mean, yes. is that what you're yes. saying? Yes.
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, look, if you look at the slave laws in the Torah, they're in three main places in Exodus, Deuteronomy, and Leviticus. And Leviticus, uh, chapter 25 abolishes the notion of an Israelite enslaving another slave, another Israelite and says very clearly, this person can work for you and can work for you until the Jubilee year, which is once every 50 years, but he is not your slave. Uh, he works for you as an indentured bondsman, and you are not allowed to afflict him as a slave would be afflicted. And by the way, I mean... Yeah. Are you kidding me? Yeah. I mean, it's there. I mean, Leviticus tends not to be one of the favorite Christian books Mm. other than Leviticus 19, 18, which is, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's half of the verse. But there's a lot of very, very important uh, material in there. And by the way, since you asked me to talk about the chapters of the book, the whole issue of uh, Jesus as a sacrifice is totally
0: unintelligible without the book of Leviticus. Mm. I want to ask this question, the Sermon on the Mount, antitheses or extensions?
1: Extensions, absolutely extensions. Uh, Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, the, the passage that's usually called antithesis, are that you have heard it said something, something, but I say to you, But if you just think about it, they're clearly not antithetical because an antithesis means an opposite. So Jesus says, you have heard it said, do not murder. An antithesis would be, you have heard it said, do not murder. But I say to you, lock and load and take out as many people as you can. That's an antithesis. But that's not what Jesus says. What he does is he extends it. Um, And he does what uh, rabbinic Judaism calls building a fence about the law. It's from a rabbinic document called Pirkei It's in the Mishnah. So what does he do? He says, you have heard it said don't murder, but I say to you, don't be angry with a brother or sister. So that that makes it more difficult to murder. If you can stop the the anger, then you're less likely to murder. Similarly, an antithesis would be, you have heard it said do not commit adultery, but I say to you, go to the bar and take your chances. What he does is he extends it again. He said, don't even think about it. If you don't think about it, if you don't lust, you're less likely to commit adultery. Don't swear a false oath, fine. Don't swear an oath at all, but just be honest all the time. Let your yes be yes and let your no be no. Um, So he's not doing something against Torah. Jesus is completely torah obedient. In fact, we know that from the way he dresses. Just think about accessorizing. Um, think about the the hemorrhaging woman who in the Gospel of Matthew reaches out and she thinks, if I can just touch the fringe of his garment. Well, according to the book of Numbers, which also doesn't get a whole lot of play in the Christian church compared to, say, Isaiah or Jeremiah or even Genesis, um, Jews, uh, male Jews wear these fringes on the garment, their garments to remind them of Torah. It's like wearing a WWJD bracelet or a a cross around your neck. So Jesus is completely loyal to Torah and, like a good Jew, interprets it. Because as Mark says, Judaism is not just the text. Judaism is the text as interpreted and then lived. And that's what Jesus does. And other Jews might disagree with him. Because at the end of the day, you're all still Jews, so you can disagree.
0: You want to add into that, Mark? Antitheses yeah, or no, extensions?
2: There, there's nothing to add. I mean, look, if you read the text with a preconception that these are antitheses and you think that the English word but can only introduce the opposite of something, then that's the way you're going to start to read. But even think about the English word "but." It doesn't always introduce an antithesis, an antithesis and the same is true of the Greek original and A.J., it's 100% correct. These are not antitheses. They're really, these really are extensions. And here you really see uh, some damage that, hit re- that history of interpretation has caused and mistranslation of the Bible has caused. So, read them as extensions, and how do you know that we're most likely to be right? Just try to read them afresh and see which interpretation makes more sense, see which word better describes what Jesus is doing in these cases. Mm -hmm.
1: And at the same time, this is what happens, Mark and I, we... (laughs) (laughs) It's good hearing each other and going, oh yeah, but there's more here. Um, so even if you look at that eye for an eye thing, which shows up in the so-called antithesis, and my student says, well, that's clearly an opposite. You have heard it said an eye for an eye, but I say to you, if somebody strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other. No, that's not an, anti- that's not an antithesis. That's changing the subject. Exactly. There's a big difference between losing an eye or losing an arm. I mean, massive physical damage that cannot be repaired and being slapped on the cheek with a backhanded slap because that's what it means to be slapped on the right cheek, presuming a right-handed person. So here Jesus changes the subject. And moreover, Jews are not reading that literally anyway. So my students say, yes, but the Jews read it literally. I said, fine. So when Jesus just a little bit later talks about if your eye offends you, pluck it out, do you mean that literally? And my friends go, no, 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 of course not. So why would they think that Jews are reading an eye for an eye literally? So we begin to to read through each other's lenses as distorting and confusing and and blurry as that might be. And then the text begins to open up even more.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: Yeah, I'll just say it's a throwaway line. I mean, the, the issue that A.J. just raised of when to know when to read a biblical text literally and when to read it figuratively is a really, really tough question. Uh, I've said jokingly that I would love to have a color-coded Bible where everything that was meant to be read literally would be in black. And let's say everything that was meant to be read figuratively was written in green, so we would know. But different scholars would fight over what should be black and what should be green, you know, in both, and I'm very close to retirement, I don't need to worry about this, but uh, if somebody published such a Bible, lots of biblical scholars would be out of work because one of the things that we debate and love to debate, because it's so incredibly unclear, how do we know what is literal and how do we know what is figurative? Mm-hmm.
0: And this, this talks about like the multi-dimensional complexities of language. As I'm reading the book, I'm like, wow, language in itself, right? It's just so intricating. So interesting how we even have you no know, different languages but almost like the same roots in some languages. A word can mean two different things, but it has the same root. And just the the multidimensional complexity that we have as humans, too, that we are capable of different interpretations of the one same text. And something I've learned reading this book is that, I mean, I I grew up Christian. I'm just going to put it simply, right? I grew up protestant or whatever you want to call it uh, in mexico and i've always had this picture of uh, almost like you describe in the introduction okay old testament god of wrath new testament god of love right um and then pharisees right when we talk about pharisees okay bad guys these are bad guys right they don't get it they don't understand jesus who are the pharisees
1: there was a major conference in Rome in May of two thousand and nineteen, an international conference um, regarding the Pharisees, and the proceeds of that that conference are right now in press with um, with Erdman's press. And I know this because I co-edited the volume with my colleague Joseph Sievers, who teaches in Rome. So who are the Pharisees? Well, part of it depends upon the Pharisee that you meet, right? That's like saying, you know who who are the who are the Protestants? It really depends upon the Protestant that you meet. Um, They are a lay group. They are known actually for living a relatively simple lifestyle. Josephus, our first century historian, who's a great resource for doing history of the time of Jesus, um, he thinks the Pharisees, they up jumped, they got ahead of their station. Why? Because Josephus is a priest and he thinks people ought to be listening to the priests. And instead, they're listening to the Pharisees because the Pharisees are not only talking the talk, they're walking the walk. Um, so they're the major competitors for, um, for where Judaism is going to go in the land of Israel, particularly after the year 70, following the destruction of the temple. Um, Jesus is very close to the Pharisees in that Pharisees interpret the text. He's interpreting the text. Pharisees are suggesting that one takes the holiness that you found in the temple, the holiness that the priest had, and you extend it to all people. That's why he talks about washing your hands, which, you know, under COVID turns out to be a very good idea. Um, so he said, you know, just as the priests wash their hands before they they handle the sacrificial elements, So uh, imagine that your home table is the altar and you're always in the presence of God and you're all a kingdom of priests in a holy nation, which is something that we find in the New Testament as well in the first epistle of Peter. Um, And Jesus is saying, well, you have another way of doing it. You can follow me. So he and the Pharisees are going to be in competition about what one should believe and how one should practice. But we also have to remember that they're all still Jews because Jews are not just a religion in the sense of getting in because of a belief. Jews are a people. They're not Gentiles and they're not Samaritans. They're all Jews and Jews do what other peoples do. They argue. Just as we can see, for example, um, citizens of the United States arguing today about <laughs> politics and yeah. everything else for that, And Jews will argue as well. But at the end of the day, they're all still Jews. And they argue about what's important and what's important are what Jesus and the Pharisees argue over. How do you honor the Sabbath and keep it holy? Um, how do you interpret what's in Leviticus or what's in Deuteronomy? And we will still argue about that today, whether we're in the synagogue or whether we're in the classroom, or the fact is whether we're in the church, because it's not as if all Christians today
2: agree either. Let me pick up on that because part of what's, given what A.J. just said, many of you read, many of the listeners might really be surprised that the Pharisees are depicted in such a derogatory fashion. But the consensus with which I agree is that Jesus was closer to the Pharisees than any of the other groups that were running around in Second Temple Judaism. And it's really worth thinking about whom do you demonize the most? You don't typically demonize those who are really distant from you theologically or in terms of beliefs. You don't care about them. The people you care about are the people with whom you share lots of things. So to go back to what AJ said, who share your notion of the Bible, what the Bible is and how it should be interpreted. But you see, oh my gosh, these people share so much with us, but they do not agree with us on what's awesome. Speaking from an early Christ believer position is the most central thing, namely the importance of the life death and resurrection of Christ. And therefore, this group who is so close to you theologically, but off on this one very important matter, is the place where you have to draw boundaries very, very closely, and often uh, where this type of demonization or misrepresentation takes place. Mm -hmm. Think about your relatives. I mean, you, you give the relatives... Yeah, the relatives you really have nothing to do with. Oh, you have nothing to do with them, but the ones who you're really close to and you disagree with, oh, those are the ones whom you might not depict in the nicest light.
1: Right. Think about the New Testament. What, what it actually says about Pharisees beyond the polemic, which is what we remember, like the Matthew twenty-three, "Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees!" All that. Um, Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, right? That's not setting the bar really low, right? Jesus doesn't, you know, say, oh, you know, whatever. He's actually setting the bar really high. He ends up by saying, be perfect, right? So he's setting the bar high. When Paul trots out his credentials in Philippians, he says, as to the law of Pharisee, right? That's that's a huge credential. That's really important because otherwise, why mention it? Nicodemus is a Pharisee. He does pretty well in the Gospel of John. Um, We know that some Pharisees joined the early, the early Jesus movement because they're there in the book of Acts. So even here, it's a choice of reading. Do we read all the negative stuff and do we ignore the positive stuff? Similarly, as you mentioned before, that God of wrath versus God of love, which is so strange to Jews. Um, When I get that nonsense from my students, which I do on occasion, it only happens once. um, I just look at them and say, "Okay, fine. The Lord is my shepherd who leads me beside still waters and restores my soul. You know, I've got a good shepherd here in Psalm 23. But you are condemned to the outer darkness where there is wailing and gnashing of teeth. That's (laughs) Jesus. So if I read the Old Testament and I highlight Psalm 23, I've got a good shepherd. If I read parts of the New Testament, I've got somebody who sounds like a really sadistic dentist, right? With wailing and gnashing of teeth. <laughs> so you've got the icky one and we've got the good one. And that's just as wrong. The God that Jesus proclaimed is the God who created heaven on earth is the God in whom, whom Jews worship. It's the same God. And there's no personality transplant, somewhere in between to use the Protestant canon, uh, the book of Malachi and the book of Matthew. So this is another one of those places where we can bring in correction. And at the same time, to tell Jews who think this Christian stuff is just strange, or they've heard of the book of Revelation and they think that's all weird and nasty and awful, to say, no, there's beautiful stuff in the New Testament. Um, I think there's beautiful stuff in the New Testament. And it's a nice way to be able to introduce it to Jews without Jews feeling the pressure that somehow we're trying to convert them. We're not trying to make Christians Jews, and we're not trying to make Jews Christians. We're trying to make Jews and Christians better Jews and better Christians and to have better knowledge of each other. Mm
0: -hmm. And you
2: said in the book, sorry, yeah. And for all the Jews, just I'll be quick on this one. And for all the Jews who think the book of Revelation is really strange, I mean, that's why we have a chapter in the book of Daniel. The book of Daniel is just as strange as the book of Revelation. Indeed, they're in continuity, one with another, part of the same genre. So there too, I hope we could make Jews understand better this very significant final book of the New
0: Testament canon. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's so good. I want to have one one uh, final question before we we kind of wrap it up with a conclusion. And this might be a little strange, but because <laughs> it's not in the book, but I'm wondering, do you think? I mean, in, you're a historian, so tell me a little bit about who Luke, the the gospel writer, is. Is he a Jew? Is he a non-Jew? And how do you guys, uh, how do you guys see Luke?
1: I can do this. Um, In 2018, I wrote a commentary on the book of Luke, a full commentary published by Cambridge University Press, and I co-wrote it with a fellow named Ben Witherington III. Uh, Ben teaches at Asbury Seminary in Wilmore, Kentucky. He's a very, very conservative United Methodist, evangelical. So this is the first time that a Jew and an evangelical wrote a biblical commentary together. Um, and we disagreed from the beginning to the end. Ben and I agree on, on uh, one or two things that are important. We really, really like each other, uh, and we're both fans of the Boston Red Sox. Now that may be neither here nor there for your listeners, but th- this is a bond that Red Sox fans understand. Um, uh, I, The jury is out on who Luke is, and Luke does not tell us. Um, and how, therefore, how we read Luke may depend upon who we think Luke is. If we think Luke is a Jew writing to convince other Jews, we'll read the text one way. If we think Luke is um, writing to a predominantly Gentile audience, and Luke does have an address, he says, oh, you know, almost oh, excellent Theophilus. Um, so uh, Theophilus sounds like a patron to whom one would dedicate a volume. That the name happens to mean lover of God is just convenient, right? It could be the guy's real name. Um, Ben thinks that Luke is much more in tune with Jewish tradition and is addressing Jews, and I think Luke is primarily looking at the Gentile world and has a much more Gentile perspective. So where you come down on Luke Um, might be where you come down on Mark. Is Mark writing from a Jewish perspective or a Gentile one? Is Matthew writing to address a primarily Jewish audience or a primarily Gentile audience? And the fact is, biblical scholars don't know. And that's in part what makes what we do so marvelously interesting. Um, So what Ben and I were able to do in the Luke commentary is what Mark and I have been able to do in the volume that we're talking about today, the Bible with and without Jesus. How you read a text depends upon the presuppositions you bring to it and the lenses through which you see it. So who was Luke? Luke is a fellow who wrote, probably a man, who wrote a two volume work uh, to a fellow named Theophilus. But I think Luke is writing to a much broader community, attempting to explain in his view who Jesus was, Likely informed by the Gospel of Mark. And uh, more and more, I think Luke had access to the Gospel of Matthew. And Luke begins by saying, you know, other people have tried to tell the story. I'm going to tell it accurately and in an order. So Luke is going to give it Luke's own spin on what we think the story is. And then Luke gives us part two, which is the story of the church. So we get Paul through Luke's eyes and Peter through Luke's eyes. And would Peter and Paul recognize themselves in that story?
0: That's another question for another time. Wow, and that is right. That's another question for another time. Um, I wanna wrap it up with this with this thought from, from you guys' book, and you can maybe you know, give us your own conclusion, but it says, the better we can see through the eyes of our neighbors, the better able we are to be good neighbors. And then you say, we live in a multicultural society where we cannot afford to ignore the perspective of others or indeed to perceive them as others. Can you guys uh, make a final comment uh, on, you no, know, based on, on this conclusion? Part of our concern is with mutual respect. Uh, for
1: a number of our Jewish friends, Christianity is Santa Claus, the Easter bunny, and a lot of intolerance. Um, For a number of my Christian friends, Judaism is legalistic, uh, stops at the end of the Old Testament, and Jews are somehow stupid because they can't recognize Jesus in the pages of their own text. And both readings are incredibly wrong. So if, if if you talk about loving your neighbor, which Leviticus mandates, it also mandates loving the stranger who dwells among you. And Jesus talks about loving the neighbor and welcoming the stranger. So the parable of the sheep and the goats in Matthew 25. How, how do you love the, the stranger? How do you love the neighbor? You, you understand what that neighbor sees to be important. And religion is one of those things that our neighbors and the strangers who dwell among us see as important. And it's a sign of respect to try to understand what our neighbors' texts say as well as how our neighbors interpret those
2: texts. So good. So AJ went to Leviticus 19, 18. I'm going to go to Genesis 1, The Hebrew, then the English. Uh, God created person in his image, in the image of God, did he create it? Male and female, did he create them? Now note, uh, everybody according to this is created in the image of God. This is not a verse about the creation of Israel. This is a verse about the creation of humanity. And note, you you talk about groups that are othered. One of the groups that is frequently othered by males are women, but that verse goes out of its way to say, "Male and female he created them." And one of the rabbinic interpretations of this is Khaviv Adam Salem, How significant and dear, meaning dear to God, is humanity, who was created in the image of God all were created in the image of God. It doesn't matter what ethnicity you're from, what geography you're from, you know, that's only gonna happen in Genesis chapters 10 and 11, where you have the division of people. But in terms of creation, we just really need to remember, uh, we all reflect that same divine image and, Because the Bible is not a history textbook, and not a natural history textbook, but rather a book, how to lead your life, where stories, sometimes is all alongside law, teach you how to lead your life. The fact that everyone, according to this account, is created in the divine image is of crucial importance for how we need to see every single one of our neighbors.
0: Ah, that's so good. Mark and AJ, thank you so much for coming on the show. The Bible with and without Jesus, how Jews and Christians read the same stories differently. The book is phenomenal. Thank you for writing it. Thank you for the, for the wisdom, the depth that you bring, the, the, even the history that you bring and allowing us to go in the journey. I believe we are one humanity. I believe we are in the 21st century. I believe conversation is is the way of the future and uh, i want to thank you guys for for coming on the show i invite people that are listening to get the book we're going to have the show notes at christianpodcast.com and you know the links to wherever you can purchase the book it's phenomenally written can't recommend it enough and um i just want to commend you guys for the work that you do and thank you so much for coming on the show really appreciate your time Thank you. What a great way to start the day.
2: Yeah, thanks for waking up so early with such great questions. I, we very
0: much appreciate it. Awesome. All right. Well, shalom and have a great rest of your days.
1: Thanks very Thank you so much.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of Christian Podcast. If you liked this episode, share it with friends and family. Make sure you subscribe and leave a positive review whenever you can. You can also visit ChristianPodcast.com to learn more about our show. Hasta la vista.